Welcome back to another edition of On the Record, the Daily Iowans Weekly News Podcast where we break down the paper's top headlines from the week. I'm your host and co-producer Eleanor Hildebrandt, and I'm here with our co-producer Haley Marks. On today's episode, we have three special guests. We will be chatting with Daily Iowan news reporters Claire Benson and Lily Rosen Marvin. We will also check in with Natalie Dunlap, one of the DI's politics reporters who wrote a story this week about bills in the Iowa legislature that have LGBTQ Iowans, allies, and community members concerned. We will also feature a segment of the DI's sports podcast, The Scoreboard, with hosts Austin Hansen and Siobhan Ahuja, where they talk to Daily Iowan pregame editor Robert Reed about Luca Garza breaking a 32-year-old Hawkeye men's basketball scoring record. Whether you're in the car, at home, or in the classroom, we'd like to welcome you to this Friday, February 26th edition of On the Record. I'm Haley Marks, On the Record's co-producer, and here are this week's headlines. On Wednesday, the Daily Island reported seven new cases of COVID-19 on the University of Iowa's campus. As of February 24th, four additional students and three employees self-reported cases of COVID-19 since Monday, February 22nd. As of Wednesday, there have been 3,442 positive for coronavirus cases since students returned to campus for the fall 2020 academic year. On Monday's print edition, the DI published a story about University of Iowa experts saying that the changing climate could mean more public health disasters in the future. Environmental health specialists told the DI that climate change could advance the spread of future infectious diseases and frequencies of global health disasters. As Iowa ramps up its distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine across the state, Executive Dean of the U.S. Carver College of Medicine, Patricia Wenker, answered questions about the vaccine on Monday. She said that the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are still effective against the different COVID-19 strains and it does not cause fertility issues or change one's DNA. On Tuesday, the Daily Iron reported on a new student organization at the UI that is trying to make STEM programs more inclusive and welcome to students of Hispanic and Native American descent. The program is geared towards building a community where underrepresented students and STEM can feel welcome and accepted. The Iowa State approved a bill that would change Iowa's absentee ballot rules and penalize county auditors who ignore state election rules on Tuesday. On Wednesday, the bill passed through the Iowa House. The legislation now heads to governor's office to be signed into law. The University of Iowa's undergraduate student government is currently working on a resolution to advocate for developers to incorporate sustainability and energy-efficient initiatives with future housing units built in Iowa City. If USG passes the resolution, representatives of the student organization will go into Iowa City Council and present the resolution on behalf of students. In Wednesday's print edition, the Daily Island reported on the campaign to organize graduate students requesting more transparency in the UI's COVID-19 case reporting. The university groups graduate students and undergraduate students when discussing cases, even though some graduate students are instructing in-person classes. Iowa State University, on the other hand, reports graduate students' COVID-19 case numbers in its own category. After relocating three times within 15 years, the Iowa City Bike Library is dragging its bikes to a permanent home this February. The final move begins a new frontier for the nonprofit where it can continue its mission to refurbish bikes. On Wednesday, the DI also covered the State Board of Regents meeting, where the Regents discussed changes to free speech policies at Iowa's public universities, improved retention and graduation rates despite the COVID-19 pandemic, the University of Iowa's hospital and clinics moving forward on plans to build a new hospital in North Liberty, and the UI's annual housing and dining report that reported millions of dollars in losses this year due to less students living in residence halls. 
The Iowa Senate Education Committee advanced a bill 11-4 on Wednesday regarding First Amendment rights and diversity, equity, and inclusion training at public colleges, universities, and post-secondary institutions in the state. The bill would require higher education institutions to establish and publicize policies that prohibit the college from restricting free speech and penalties on protected speech. University of Iowa College of Dentistry Dean David Johnson will step down at the end of the spring 2021 semester after an email thread in the college raised free speech concerns with state Republican lawmakers. Johnson is stepping away a year earlier than his original plan to leave the position in the summer of 2022. A press release from Iowa Now, the UI's news service, does not mention the political controversy as a reason for the earlier date. And during a press conference on Thursday, Iowa Governor Kem Reynolds announced the launch of a government website for vaccine information to simplify the vaccination process. The website launched on Friday, and it plans to connect people with providers in their area and answer frequently asked questions about the vaccination process. You can read all these stories and more in the Daily Iowans print editions on Mondays and Wednesdays or online anytime at dailyiowan.com. News reporter Claire Benson, who covers city council and the downtown district for the paper, wrote a story this week about Iowa City utilizing the maximum property tax levy to implement a minimum wage of $15 an hour for all city employees. Welcome, Claire. We're excited to have you back on the podcast. How's your week going? Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on as always. My week's been pretty good. Glad to see the warmer weather. Yes, it's nice to see the sunlight through windows now. And so in your story, you wrote about the Iowa City property tax levy, allowing the city to raise the minimum wage for city employees. What is the current minimum wage in Iowa City and how will this funding be divvied up across these employees? So for city employees right now, the current minimum wage is $13.25 per hour. And so they're raising that just, just ever so slightly to $15 per hour. And so it's it was kind of a complicated process going through um, the descriptions of a tax levy and what that all imposes. But um, so essentially the maximum property tax levy, so the city's looking to collect as much funding in property taxes as possible. And they're going to use that funding to redistribute it to the city's budget and allow that money to go towards funding public services and the city employees. So overall, yeah, it's, it's only going up a little bit, the minimum wages, but once you apply that dollar and 75 cents to uh, thousands of hours worked by cities, temporary and seasonal workers, it does add up to be quite the cost, which is why the city is using the maximum property tax levy to acquire more funding so that they can make this an attainable goal. Yeah, and obviously this is a change that would require some time with the increase in minimum wage and all of those hours that it applies to. How long has this nearly $2 increase per hour been on the table and what is the timeline for the minimum wage increase? Yeah, so the city council has actually been discussing, you know, raising this minimum wage for about two to three years now. Um, and so they're, as of right now, they're on track to implement this $15 minimum wage this July of 2021. So it'll be soon that this is coming up. But yeah. And you spoke with City Finance Director Dennis Bockenstedt and Assistant to the City Manager Rachel Kilberg for your story. Did they think that this goal was attainable by fiscal year 2022 or did they think it was too ambitious with everything going on with COVID? Yeah, so both of them actually said that they felt as though the City Council really prioritized making this happen, especially within the time span of two to three years. Um, and regardless of the obstacles brought by COVID-19, the city was still able to prioritize this and, you know, put this in effect in July 2021. So they didn't think it was too ambitious at all. 
Yeah, and obviously minimum wage has been a topic on various levels of government in recent years and even this year in 2021. What are the benefits that your sources saw in increasing the minimum wage for Iowa City city employees? Um, I spoke with city councilor Laura Burgess and she really just put it plain and simply that the city wants to show that they care about their workers and that they want to treat them fairly and provide them with a livable wage and necessary benefits. So it really just comes down to, you know, treating the workers well and making sure that they are able to financially sustain themselves. Well, thank you for being on the podcast today, Claire, and sharing your story with us. Hopefully we can have you back again sometime soon. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Next up, we have Lily Rosen Marvin, a DI News reporter. She wrote a story on Monday about the risks of posting vaccine cards for the COVID-19 vaccinations on social media. Welcome to the studio, Lily. We are delighted to have you on today for the first time. How's your semester going so far? It's good. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. And so as more people are receiving the COVID-19 vaccination, there are some concerns about posting vaccine cards on social media. What information is on these cards and what risks does that pose to people who post these photos following their vaccination? So the information is going to depend a little bit on where you get your vaccination, but pretty standard, you'll have your full name, your date of birth, as well as the site that you got your vaccination at, and then some of them also will include a medical ID number. So the concern there is that just with your full name and date of birth, that's a lot of really important information. And if you're posting a vaccine card on a public Instagram account, a public Facebook account, you're really displaying some pretty important information and you don't know who could get their hands on it. Yeah, and you actually spoke with a legal expert and a healthcare professional about their concerns with these cards being posted publicly. Do members of the two fields have similar concerns or did they see any potential benefits to publicizing one's vaccination process? I talked to people, I talked to UIHC and then I also reached out to one of our law professors at the university, Professor Anya Prince, who specializes in um, health privacy. And Professor Prince really emphasized that she's pretty concerned that by posting that card, people aren't really thinking through that anyone could really get their hands on that information. But she did emphasize that there is a potential real public health benefit for people posting about their positive experience getting the vaccine. So if you're someone who has friends or family who are exhibiting some vaccine hesitancy, having a message from a trusted aunt or a trusted friend about how the vaccine experience was positive could be really good for that person. She just emphasized that there are some ways to share about your experience that are more secure than others. Yeah, and speaking of those potential benefits, you also spoke with people who actually posted these cards on Instagram or Facebook or other social media channels. What were their reasons for posting such private information online? What did they want to get out of it? So I talked to Sam Billingsley, who is a patient access specialist at UIHC, and he posted his vaccine card on both his public Instagram, on his story, and then on his public Facebook. And he said he was aware of the concerns about privacy before posting, and he did consider blurring out some of the information, but he thought his vaccine card was difficult enough to read that someone wouldn't be able to lift his information off of it. He wasn't too concerned about that. And for him, he really wanted to share his experience because he wanted to be a resource for people in his community who were maybe unsure about getting the vaccine. He actually mentioned that after he posted on his story, he had a lot of friends swipe up and ask him questions either about his experience or potentially about how they might react to getting the vaccine. 
Yeah, well, thank you for coming on the podcast this week, Lily. We can't wait to read more of your stories in the DI in coming weeks. Thank you for having me. Next, we have Natalie Dunlap, one of the DI's politics reporters, who wrote a story showcasing several bills currently making their way through the Iowa House and Senate that are concerning the LGBTQ community and allies. Welcome, Natalie. We are so excited to have you on the podcast again. How's everything going? Pretty well, Eleanor. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah. And so in this story, you touch on a few bills that will impact the LGBTQ community on various levels. What are these bills and where are they in the legislative process? Yeah, so the two bills that I focused on were one that would prohibit people from using bathrooms that don't align with their biological sex in elementary and secondary schools. And the second one that would require parents or guardians to provide written consent for kids in first through sixth grade to learn about gender identity. And that bill would also say that gender identity can't be part of the kindergarten curriculum. And both of those bills have had education subcommittee meetings this month and passed out of those subcommittee meetings. Um, but there's also some other bills that have been introduced but not assigned a subcommittee meeting date yet. So one house file would remove gender identity as a protected class under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Um, another house file would limit transgender use ability to access gender affirming medical care. Another would require students only participate in sports teams of their biological sex or on co-ed teams. And a Senate file would require schools to share students' pronouns with parents upon request. Wow, so they've got a lot going on in this department, and obviously these bills are addressing a variety of things and a variety of people, but who will this impact the most based on age or situation? Yeah, so the bathroom bill is specific to secondary and elementary schools, so most people that are worried about the bill are advocating for transgender students who are in the building every day, kids who are in grades like K through 12. But there was also a transgender father at the subcommittee meeting on that bill who pointed out that the way the bill's language reads, it also would require him to use the girls restroom when he volunteers at his daughter's school since he was assigned female at birth. And so he said like as an adult man, he shouldn't be using the same restroom as elementary school girls. So while it mostly would impact students, um, some parents are also concerned about how this would impact old um, adults in the transgender community. And then the gender identity bill really affects every student in elementary school because they would all be affected on, in terms of learning about gender identity or not. But uh, LGBTQ advocates were really coming out against this bill as well because they felt it flags ideas of gender identity as dangerous and creates a less welcoming and safe environment for LGBTQ kids. And speaking of those subcommittees, you actually spoke with state senators Jem Carlin, Jeff Taylor, and Claire Selsey. How do these senators feel about the legislation and the likelihood that it will continue to move forward in the Iowa House and Senate? Yeah, so Senator Jim Carlin, from, a Republican from Sioux City, introduced the bathroom bill into the legislation, and his argument was that he didn't want women and girls to be put in a situation where men could prey on them. And he gave some examples of women he knows or has represented who have been insulted in restrooms by men, but didn't have any real life examples of men presenting themselves as women to commit those attacks. So that's kind of when like the biological part comes into play. Um, and then in the subcommittee meeting for the bill, he said he didn't feel like the privacy of women and girls were being taken into consideration on this issue. But then Senator Claire Selsey, a Democrat who was opposed to the bill said the reason that people weren't bringing up that concern is that more transgender people would be impacted by it and put in a more dangerous situation if they weren't allowed access to the bathroom of their gender identity. And then neither Carlin nor Celsi thinks that it, the bathroom bill is very likely to become law. 
Carlin said the point of introducing it was to start a conversation, but Celsi said that introducing it was a waste of time. And by doing so, Iowans who are transgender, who advocate for transgender people in their life have been greatly upset by it. But these bills aren't just concerning to some of the legislators, are they? There has been a subcommittee on these bills, as you mentioned earlier. How did people react during the public comment on this legislation? So um, Senator Salsi said as soon as the bill was filed for the um, bathroom bill, that transgender adults and students and parents of transgender kids, also counselors, coaches, principals, superintendents, reached out in opposition of it. So it was a lot of people who are either people who are in the LGBTQ community or who are also in the school community who don't want their kids to feel uncomfortable, who, who just don't want um, the state government to be involved in that. And then on the gender identity, schools said that they didn't want the state government getting involved in their curriculum. And then advocates of LGBTQ students were saying that this would make it a more school, a more safe place for people who don't fit inside the gender binary, but also just help cisgender students to understand gender identity and learn about themselves. And um, a lobbyist from the family leader who was advocating for the bill that would give parents the opportunity to give written consent for learning about gender identity so that parents should be involved in that and like the well-being of their children. Well, thank you for chatting with us today. We look forward to having you back on sometime soon. Thanks, Eleanor. And finally, we have a segment from the Daily Iowans sports podcast, The Scoreboard. This week, Robert Reed, the DI's pregame editor, discusses his project on Luca Garza setting a new men's basketball scoring record on Sunday night with hosts Austin Hansen and Shivanj Ahuja. Uh, different week for us. Um, new podcast. We're doing something a little different today. I'm Austin Hansen. I'm the co-host of the DI Scoreboard, and my co-host is Siobhan Chahuja. Siobhan, hey. introduce yourself to the, yeah. the record audience. It's going to be a little bit... Hi, I'm Siobhan. I am the other co-host of the Scoreboard uh, alongside Austin. It is a little bit different because we have a uh, a special segment here uh, going over a project by one of the sports uh, sports writers at the Daily Iowan. Yeah, our DI pregame editor, um, breaking news specialist, projects editor, Robert Reed wrote a fabulous project length showcase story on Luca Garza. And uh, he hit a pretty significant milestone, if I remember correctly, Robert. Yeah, your, uh, your memory's doing just great. And thank you for that uh, introduction, Austin. Uh, yeah, Iowa center Luca Garza uh, at home on Sunday against Penn State broke Roy Marble's 32-year-old scoring record and is now the all-time leading scorer in the history of the Hawkeye men's basketball program. So, uh, Austin, we were both there in the, uh, the press row section of Carver Hawkeye Arena, and it was a really cool moment to see Garza, you know, getting that basket with about eight minutes left in the second half of Sunday's game to break the record. Um, so it, it's too bad that, uh, you know, is pretty much in front of an empty venue because Carver would have been rocking if Garza broke that in a full capacity uh, arena, but it, it was still a cool moment to be able to witness history like that. So outside of the actual record breaking night for Garza on Sunday, 
let's talk about your story specifically. Uh, you took things a little deeper than just, hey, here's a guy that broke the record at Iowa. What can you tell people about Luca Garza that they might not already know? Yeah, well, it, it was in probably late December, early January, where I was thinking, you know, probably wanted to do a project length, well, several project length stories this semester and was thinking of the first one. And I thought it was natural to, you know, do a profile of the best player in men's college basketball in Garza and time that around sometime this basketball season. And, uh, you know, as it progressed a little bit, you know, started to pinpoint on the calendar when maybe he was going to become the program's all-time leading scorer. Um, so we've had several uh, running dates in mind throughout the uh, the history of this project, and it ended up um, going in this Monday's paper. But yeah, I, I wanted to, obviously, the breaking news element of it, as you mentioned, is Garza becoming the program's all-time leading scorer. But I wanted to have a lot more behind the scenes ready to go to include in that breaking news story when Garza actually broke the record. So you know, I, I talked to his um, high school coach, uh, Chuck Drysell. I talked to Frank Garza, his father. I talked to Nicholas Bear, a former Iowa player who's back on with the team as a graduate assistant. And then, you know, using that along with my interviews with Garza and hearing from Fran and several of Luca's current teammates really tried to put together how Luca accomplished this record and uh, hit his road to the top of the all-time scoring leaderboard. So, you know, I, I had a section in the story about his time at, in high school, how he went from uh, in his freshman year scoring four points per game to becoming the DC Washington, D.C. Uh, area player of the year as a senior and becoming his high school's all-time leading scorer and dropping 37 and 17 in the district uh, championship game, but losing. And uh, th that's one of the big things that stood out to me um, both in his time at Iowa that we've seen firsthand and in the past is, you know, Luke has achieved a lot of personal accolades and broken records, but it, it really, it, it finds Luca Garza is after a loss, he is the last one who wants to talk about, well, I scored 44 points against Michigan, but no, he's, he's going to say that he needed to get, you know, a couple more baskets or play better defense to do something to help the team. Uh, and that was very apparent and how, distraught he was after that district final game as a senior a game by the way that he had to leave briefly because uh, he had a wound open up on his head that required roughly 12 stitches to repair and of course Garza being Garza um, went back to the remainder of that game anyway um, but you know that's that's one thing I, I talked to Frank a little bit about the off-season workout schedule that they've developed basically since Luke has been in high school and you know the real intensity there from you know three-point shooting drills to sliding back and forth on the court with bricks in each hand to I, I thought an interesting one was running on the uh, beaches in Hawaii or wherever it may be um, at night so the mosquitoes were active because Frank thought that would entice Luca to run a little bit faster so interesting strategy there I don't think I want to try that one firsthand but you know whatever whatever works for Luca so you know finding that stuff um, then going through his recruiting process a little bit and tracking his Iowa career to this point, you know, finding all these different things that led to Luca becoming the men's program's all-time leading scorer is really what I wanted to uh, accomplish with this story. And you obviously did quite a bit of sourcing for this, but was there a one underlying thing that everyone had to say about Garza in particular, or was everyone saying, you know, a little little variation of the same thing well I, I tried to you know obviously it's a big basketball story 
uh, and you hear a lot of, you know, what he's like on the court. Um, but I, I thought really some of the interesting stuff was, you know, his teammates or his coaches or his former coaches describing him off the court, you know, Chuck Drysell, his high school coach talked about how, you know, he was a math tutor in high school. He would volunteer to read to the younger classes because it's a K through 12 school that he went to. So, you know, it, it's pretty easy to go to a, uh, a class and read to him on any given day. Uh, he was a viola player. There's a photo somewhere of Luca playing in the orchestra and just towering over <laughs> everybody by him. And that's great. I'd love to be the kid coming to orchestra for the first day and not knowing there was a 6'11 guy standing next to me um, but that was great and then you hear guys like Jordan Bohannon saying that it's amazing how humble Garza has stayed through everything you wouldn't think that he's the you know one of the elite college athletes in the country hearing things like two children at Target seeing Garza in the Iowa City area and um, you know getting really excited going up to him introducing himself and then they race into the store and buy basketballs and meet Luca at the checkout lines so that he could sign them, um, stuff like that. So it's, I think Luca, you know, above all else is a really good ambassador to break this 32 year old record. I know Fran McCaffrey on multiple occasions um, has said Roy Marble who died in 2015 um, of cancer said if, if Roy was here today, he would love that Luca was the one to surpass him. And I think you've heard that, you know, Austin, when we were, their Sunday after the game, they had this really cool video montage of a bunch of former Iowa players, um, you know, sending videos of congratulations to Luke and playing them on the video board at Carver. And, you know, even those guys who played with Marble also expressed those sentiments of, you know, we're really glad it's you because you're a, a first class player and a first class person to be sort of the, the face of this program. So to kind of wrap up, here the last thing I wanted to ask you about was what's next for Garza obviously you have the immediate rest of this season um, there's been a lot of talk about what his NBA prospects are but what do you see uh, for Garza going forward yeah well I mean the immediate future is finally getting the opportunity to be the best player in the country on the March Madness stage because that was uh, kind of robbed from him last year with the pandemic canceling the tournaments but mm -hmm. I thought Fran McCaffrey put it in a funny way a couple of weeks ago when he was sort of asked about Luca's NBA prospects. So he was like, well, they still have a scoreboard in the NBA, so he better, you know, find a place somewhere because they still could have a use for him. Um, you know, I, I think he could earn a roster spot in the NBA. I don't know if he'd be a first-round pick or a second-round pick or if he'd have to spend time in the G League or something, but especially the way he's developed his shot from the outside, I think he could find a way to make a team, but I think the more likely destination is, you know, playing overseas in Europe, which is quite some time, um, you know, I've heard Luca declined six or seven figure contract offers over the summer to go overseas and play basketball and instead opted to uh, come back for Iowa to Iowa for a senior season. And I'd imagine he'd only help his, uh, his draft stock or his contract stock, or whatever you want to call it, you know, with dominating again this year, leading the nation in scoring doing all the things that go into being the best player in the country. So he's definitely going to be playing professionally somewhere. I guess it just comes down to whether he prefers trying to go the NBA route or starting overseas or whatever he wants to do. Like Tyler Cook, for instance, has, you know, he went the NBA route, had to fight for, he's going from G League spot to G League spot, just signed a 10-day contract with the Brooklyn Nets because he's absolutely dominating uh, for the Iowa Wolves. So 
we'll, we'll just have to see what Luca wants to do. Luca Garza, the Iowa men's basketball program's humble, team-driven, all-time leading scorer, is available on dailyiowan.com. Robert Reed, uh, the author, is just a fantastic read. A collection of photos from Garza's biggest games. Uh, I highly recommend everybody go check it out online. Yeah, and just one more thing to add. It really was a great team effort. Obviously, there's the story there, but as you said, you know, photo department coming in clutch, putting together a cool slideshow of Luca over the years. Uh, Kelsey Harrell, our digital managing editor, has a cool graphic of the program's all-time leading scores. Uh, we've got a DITV package in there, just a, a whole bunch of stuff. It was really cool to see, you know, on kind of a short deadline to get it in print after uh, Garza broke the the record on Sunday. It was cool to see how everything came together. So definitely check it out. It's Frank Garza approved if that changes anybody's mind. Thanks so much, Robert, for agreeing to do this with us. Um, we'll throw it back to Haley and Eleanor and the regular on the record crew and be sure to listen to the DI scoreboard if you haven't already. Thanks for listening. Follow The Daily Iowan on social media and check our website for breaking news updates and the latest COVID-19 related news. We'll be back next week with another edition of On the Record.